I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. This morning, families here are grieving and praying for the dead. It is unfathomable that somebody in today's society would walk into a church when people are having a prayer meeting and take their lives. I do believe this was a hate crime. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that Five years ago this week, on the evening of June 17, 2015, a white supremacist named Dylan Roof walked into a Bible study class in the basement of the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and while shouting racial epithets, opened fire with a Glock pistol, killing nine. It was one of the most horrific acts of racial violence in modern memory and prompted that remarkable moment when President Barack Obama sought to heal the wounds by singing Amazing Grace at a memorial service for those who had died. Nobody remembers the pain and horror of the Charleston church shooting more than South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn, who had fought for civil rights in his state since childhood. But over the past two weeks, Clyburn has had to grapple with the legacy of the country's racist past once again, amid the protests over police killing of African Americans. We'll talk to him about what needs to be done now and what shouldn't be done. And we'll talk to two psychoanalysts who have contributed to a new book about President Trump's long history of narcissist behavior on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crooked. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I have to say, I had completely forgotten until when we were booking this interview, James Clyburn's staff reminded us that this is the fifth anniversary of that Charleston massacre. And, you know, in one sense, it seems so long ago, like some sort of aberrant action from the country's tortured past. But as we've seen over the last two weeks with the protests and the killing of African-Americans by police departments, it uh, is still very much with us. Yeah, and that's the story of our tragic history with racism in this country, that uh, even as we see signs of progress, 
sometimes they're just signs and they, they don't actually reflect the sort of deep-seated issues uh, that we have been dealing with for hundreds of years in this country. And so at moments like this, which kind of force the country to confront its uh, tragic racial past, you begin to examine these kinds of episodes. And another one that is very much in the news right now, and that, you know, I think probably a lot of Americans are learning about for the first time, were those terrible riots, uh, race riots in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 99 years ago, when mobs of white people marauding through the streets of uh, Greenwood, Tulsa, the most affluent black neighborhood in the country, terrorized and murdered up to 300 people, left 15,000 people homeless. Of course, this is the site of the first big rally that Donald Trump will be giving since COVID. He had to move it from June 19th under pressure because that was Juneteenth, the day that uh, blacks in this country commemorate the um, end of slavery. But, you know, I guess the silver lining is, is that a lot of people are learning about it. Yeah, you know, look, the Tulsa uh, massacre is so fascinating because, you know, look, I grew up in the 60s. I remember the riots in major American cities in Harlem and Watts and Detroit. And I don't remember learning about the Tulsa riots by whites killing African-Americans in uh, Oklahoma. That was just not part of the American history books that I read or was taught in school. It's a reminder that our history changes constantly. And what we what we learn today is very often uh, what we'd forgotten many years ago. Clyburn, look, nobody's got uh, greater moral standing to talk about these issues than James Clyburn, uh, you know, the uh, longest serving, highest ranking African-American in Congress, a guy who fought for civil rights, was arrested, I think, at the age of 12, participating in sit-ins in South Carolina. And, you know, really interesting because um, while he's clearly, as we'll discover, clearly angry about what's happened with um, the killing of African-Americans by police, he's also a measured voice. And he knows what happens when the rhetoric gets too heated and the actions go too far. And uh, hearing his kind of uh, measured response is, I think, uh, illuminating. He, he's also a hard-nosed Paul and a deeply pragmatic politician. And I think he understands that as inspiring as these protests are, and protests are clearly an important dimension of democracy, that you also have to harness that energy and apply it to other forms of democratic action, including passing legislation and getting, you know, new policies put in place that, uh, you know, reflect the kinds of changes that need, need to be made. And that is what he's focused on. That takes getting more Democrats elected. And um, he is uh, laser focused on that issue. 
Right. And, and, he, and he's worried about how some of the rhetoric, and we'll talk to him about this, about defunding the police could be counterproductive for that goal. I think it's also uh, worth pointing out that this is also the fifth anniversary, or this month is the fifth anniversary of the Supreme Court's historic same-sex marriage decision, which seemed so momentous at the time. It's, it's kind of bizarre that uh, it took place, that both the uh, Emanuel uh, A. AME church killings, and that Supreme Court decision took place the very same month. And this month, we have the protests over the police killings, and we just had another historic, totally unexpected Supreme Court decision about transgender and gay rights. Yeah, look, this is a transformational landmark decision. It is the first time that the United States Supreme Court has extended real civil rights protections under the Title VII of the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act to gays and transgender people. People don't, a lot of people don't realize that in I don't know, 26 or 27 states in the country, you can be fi- you can still be fired for being gay or being a transgender person. Well, no more. And for people who remain who are cynical about our, our institutions and don't think that you know the laws can can really be changed and it, this is an example of of how nine people who wear black robes can make a really big difference in this particular case six uh, it was a six th- to three decision but what's really notable and surprising to use your word was that two of the most conservative uh, justices on the court uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Neil Gorsuch who replaced Justice Scalia and was regarded by conservative activists out there as a sure bet on these kinds of issues uh, voted with the majority here. So not, that not is just a, voted, Gorsuch wrote the and, opinion. And, and wrote the opinion. And um, it, I think, is worth noting that, um, you know, he clerked for Justice Kennedy, who in the past was the swing justice, but a conservative who also wrote all of the most consequential gay rights decisions, including the gay marriage decision. So he's following in the footsteps of his uh, of his mentor there. And I think the last thing I want to say about this is that at times of great crisis in this country that, you know, put spotlights on the continuing issues that we, we are dealing with in terms of discrimination, it is probably worth remembering that progress and setbacks kind of move on parallel paths sometimes. And it, you know, remind, reminds us of that Martin Luther King quote that uh, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it ultimately bends toward justice. And so for people who are depressed right now about the state of our country, every once in a while, it's, it's nice to see that there are some silver linings here and there. Well, uh, with that uh, cosmic thought uh, from you, (laughs) um, let's go to uh, our guest who I think uh, has um, equally, if not greater, cosmic thoughts about where we are, uh, Congressman James Clyburn. So let's get to it. Congressman James Clyburn, welcome back to Skullduggery. Uh, Thanks for having me. So it was five years ago this week that the um, horrific slaughter at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, took place. As you look back at that moment right now when when the country is facing another racial reckoning, what are your thoughts? Well, I've given a lot of thought to that. (laughs) 
the 17th of June, Wednesday, uh, marks the fifth anniversary of that horrific event. And it was the response to that event on two fronts that I think instructs us about this five-year anniversary. Number one, the response of the police. Two days after that shooting, this 21-year-old self-professed white supremacist who went into that church, invaded a Bible study, killed nine people, went up to North Carolina and was arrested. When he was arrested, all the videotapes show that several policemen approached his automobile. And when they did, the automobile stopped. As they arrested him, though they had their guns drawn at the beginning, they reholstered their guns. And they took him out of the car in a very silver way. Even he was thirsty, they gave him water. He said he was hungry, and they took him to a Burger King and took him, before taking him back to Charleston, to face justice. That's the first instruction on how to conduct an arrest. The second bit of instruction, I think, came after the, at the hearing, when those family members looked at this guy who had just murdered their family and their friends, and they say they forgave him. That, to me, started a re-examination of what this country is and what this country could be. I really believe those family members and their reaction and the reactions there in Charleston started this re-examination that allowed this response today. I was there in the 1960s. John Lewis and I met in October 1960. I remember what it was like to have a movement develop around young people, young and old, black and white, Jews and Gentiles, Catholics and Protestants. We all gathered, but we lost that movement. We lost that movement because it got hijacked. It got hijacked by sloganarian, burn, baby, burn, uh, became the headline. Hijacking the movement, we lost it. This time, I hope it will be different, which is one of the reasons I've been speaking out very strongly against the headline seekers and the sloganarian that's been taking place in this camp, in, in this effort. One of those slogans that we will get into in this conversation has to do with policing and defunding the police, but we will get to that. But I wanted to pick up on, on what you were saying before. You're, you're 79 years old. You grew up in the Jim Crow South, as you pointed out. You were a young activist during the civil rights era. You launched your political career after being involved in that Charleston hospital strike which was, I think, one of the last campaigns and uh, civil rights campaigns in South Carolina of that era. And so I guess what I want to know is right now, after the killing of George Floyd and these wide-scale protests that have erupted in its wake, how do you assess the state of race relations in America right now? I guess the question really is, notwithstanding the, the sort of stubborn persistence of systemic racism in our society and in our institutions, in your view, is the trajectory still toward 
progress and freedom and harmony? Or have these brutal police killings laid bare that may be a myth? How do you feel about where we are today? I think that this whole notion of uh, institutionalized racism is something that we've never really had an honest examination of. I often think uh, about a, a woman down in Charleston, Rowena Tobias, who said to me when I was very young, in my 20s, she invited me to her home one day, and she said to me that she thought that she saw in things I was saying and doing uh, some real future for this issue of race. And here's what she said to me. She said, the reason we can't get this issue resolved because people won't talk about it. She talked about Charleston's early beginning, how it was the economic hub on the East Coast. But then anytime the question of race came up, people stopped talking. And she said to me on that day, I would hope that as you go through your career, please don't stop talking. This issue has to be addressed. And until we do, we will not get it resolved. And I think that's what's beginning to happen. We have ignored this. We have uh, pretended it didn't exist. But all of a sudden now, people watching George uh, Floyd being lynched uh, as they watch their television sets, and, and they have decided it's time to start talking. They are taking instructions from those poor souls uh, reacting to the Emanuel 9, and they are saying, we just cannot ignore this any longer. And so I think that this time, it's a bit different. And it's kind of interesting because this week we're also celebrating Juneteenth. And that is an, a, a classic example of what it is not to communicate. Juneteenth started in 1865, two and a half years after slavery had been declared over because it did not get communicated to those postals down in Galveston, Texas. It was not to General Granger got there two and a half years later to tell them that they were now free. That's what communication is all about. The failure to communicate kept them in the slavery two and a half years longer than they should have. The failure to communicate today is what's keeping us from solving this problem. Congressman, you said before that the uh, civil rights movement that you were part of in the 1960s got hijacked by people shouting slogans like, burn, baby, burn. And you expressed concern that the same kind of hijacking could be taking place right now with the protests over the police killing of African-Americans. And I think you have spoken out against the slogan that many of the protesters are shouting, defund the police. Do you see defund the police as the equivalent of burn baby burn in the 1960s? Well, it's familiar. Certainly, anytime you give the other side cover to deny or reject, then I don't think you're doing a good service. You know, if we mean restructure the police, say restructure. If we mean deconstruct policing, say deconstruct. That is my problem here. 
I don't have a problem with people who tell me what they mean when they say defund the police. I believe in the meaning. The problem is, if you allow the soundbite to lead, then you're going to lose the argument. Explain what you mean when you say you believe in the, in the meaning, but not the soundbite. Everybody I talk to, she said, well, they will tell you, well, this is what I mean by that. I mean this and I mean the other. What and do you what mean? What you're saying is exactly what I believe ought to be done. So, but you, it's almost like saying burn, baby, burn means get off the back of the bus, integrate the lunch counters, start a new city. Does that mean that? That's what we were trying to do. We were trying to desegregate transportation, desegregate public accommodations, open up schools. The 1954 Supreme Court decision has still not been adhered to, and we were trying to get schools integrated. So how does that mean, how does burn, baby, burn contribute to that? It doesn't. Do you you think that uh, if Democrats were to take up that slogan, defund the police, that that would lead to electoral routes, that, that it's essentially handing Donald Trump and the Republicans a kind of political battering ram to go against the Democrats. Now, we know that Biden has said he doesn't support that, but in terms of congressional races, for example? Jim Clyburn doesn't support that either, and I've worked on congressional races, and that's one reason I'm speaking out. George Santiano told all of us years ago that we should learn the lessons of history, or we're bound to repeat them. That is a lesson of history that I have learned, and I don't want to repeat it. And I'm not going to stand out of the by and watch anybody else take us back there. So please explain the distinctions in your mind. You don't support the slogan, defund the police, but you do support changes in the way policing is taking place in this country. Just distinguish for us what you do support and what you don't support. Number one, I'll just invite you to look at the Justice in Policing Act. Everything that I support is in that act. Demilitarize the police. Get rid of this, whatever we call this immunity that police officers got. You can shoot a seven-month-old, a seven-month pregnant woman and be immunized. You can put to death nine bullets into a, a demented person unarmed and be immunized. You can keep your knee on the neck of a black person for eight minutes and 46 seconds, and under the law, you've got qualified immunity. That's what I mean, get rid of qualified immunity. Demilitarize, take these military equipment and ammunition out of the hands of local police. Get rid of chokeholds. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. So you're talking about systemic reform. There are critics out there who will say that the police departments as currently constituted are essentially irredeemable, that they have to be kind of raised to the ground and rebuilt, that there is something rotten to the core in policing and in police cultures. Do you not accept that? I absolutely accept that. I agree with that. We aren't arguing what the problem is. We're not arguing what the solution is. And solution to me is not defunding, it's restructuring. Everybody keeps telling me about Camden, New Jersey. What did they do in Camden, New Jersey? They got rid of the police department, but they brought in the county 
to take over policing. Mm-hmm. They didn't defund policing. Right. They eliminated a police department. So that's all I'm saying. I agree with yeah. that. As you have watched the protests unfold over the last couple of weeks, um, mostly peaceful, but not entirely. In some cases, there's been looting. In some cases, there's been rioting. How concerned are you about the protests that have gotten out of hand? And are enough people on your side speaking up and speaking out against the violence and the looting? Well, that's exactly what happened. This family, George Floyd's family, spoke up and spoke out against the looting, saying that's not how they want their brother, their father, uh, uncle to be remembered. They spoke out against it. I spoke out against it. Many others spoke out against it. And that's all I'm saying now. We're not going to let those people who are up to no good, people who protest, they protest with a purpose. People who come in and throw Molotov cocktails and burn it down the building, what's their purpose? People who are looting, what's their purpose? The people who are protesting, that's not them. I have said over and over again, if you play their game, they win. And that's what they're doing. The people who participate in violence, that's their game. The only violence I saw in Washington, D.C. was the president sending his folks out there to clear out a path uh, for him to stage a photo op, police on horseback, with tear gas, or some other chemical agents that they're now admitting uh, that they use. The fact of the matter is that was violent action. I always say violence is the unjust use of force or power. That was violence, the unjust use of power. But uh, Congressman Clyburn, there seems to be at least some generational divide uh, in this country over these issues. And you saw on social media, for example, a lot of people quoting Dr. King. And I think one of his last speeches talking about rioting being the voice of the unheard and using that as a kind of a justification because the anger that's being expressed by people who do riot or who do burn down buildings is a kind of uh, desperation because their situation is so bad. You don't, what do you think of that Martin Luther King quote and how it's been used and that argument? Well, people can use quotes to make anything they want out of them. People use the Bible to justify slavery. <laughs> that doesn't do anything. Uh, but you use your warped thinking. The fact of the matter is, I would also quote Dr. King in his letter from the Birmingham City Jail when he said that we was coming to the conclusion that the people of ill will in our society was making a much better use of time than the people of goodwill. And so all I would say is for us to take a look at Dr. King as a whole. He wasn't justifying writing. He was explaining it. And so there's a the big difference in explaining what people do than to justify what they do. So King never justified that. What do they say about King calling for nonviolence? Mm-hmm. John Lewis internified it. It's internalized with him. I never internalized nonviolent. I'm not a violent person, but I'm certainly not a nonviolent person. Congressman, uh, the president today is signing an executive order designed to encourage local police departments to adopt best practices and doing so through uh, incentives for grant money. Is this an adequate response to the protests? 
in your view? The Constitution encourages legislation is what orders. So that's why I said two days ago, and I'll say it again, I don't care what the, uh, the president may do with the executive order. If he signs an executive order, he can rescind it. We need to do legislation, the House, the Senate, and then he needs to sign the legislation. If he is really serious about this, then encourage Mitt McConnell to take up the Justice in Policing Act. We got 220 sponsors in the House. There are about 35 or 40 in the Senate. Tell him to come out, support that. Mitch McConnell, put it on the floor, and then he will sign it. That's when I know he's serious, not an executive order to encourage. The Bible encourages every day. Congressman, President Trump is set to have a physical rally in Tulsa on Saturday, Tulsa being the site of the worst incident of of racial violence in this country and a tragic, tragic episode in our history. Is that a slap at the face of black Americans? Do you think he should be holding a rally there? Well, uh, that explains uh, one more uh, incident uh, to explain what the answer is to his question, what do you have to lose? When he asked that question, that turned out to be a very significant uh, turn of events. 13% of African-American males went out and voted for him based upon that question. The fact of the matter is, he is now showing us every day what you've got to lose. Going to Tulsa is an indication of what you got to lose, your dignity and your respect. And I would hope that those 13% of African-Americans that voted for him and those who are out there supporting them now, I would hope they will regather themselves, take back their dignity, demand respect, and say to this man who looks in the camera and calls a black woman a dog, and think about whether you want, whether they would want uh, him to say that about the women in their lives. Congressman, uh, we still have a uh, COVID crisis in this country, uh, including in your state in South Carolina, where there have been um, some increases in the number of cases. You know, a lot of people saw the protests taking place, the lack of social distancing, people congregating together and said that is going to cause increases in the number of uh, sick people and potentially lead to more deaths. Are you concerned that the protests have undermined the kind of restrictions we need to keep in place while the COVID crisis is still with us? Absolutely not. The protests got nothing to do with that. The problem we've got is leadership at the national level. This president has left this country up to having 50 uncoordinated responses to COVID-19. So that, to me, is what the real problem is. If this president would give leadership to this issue and not declare that I take no responsibility and not leave it up to each one of the governors to develop their own thing, have one national coordinated effort. If he were to lead on this issue, I think people would follow. So what we see taking place here is that nothing has been coordinated, no leadership, and that's the problem. 
Congressman, uh, we can't finish this interview without asking you about the vice presidential search. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you're tired of hearing these questions, but uh, you obviously are a uh, have been an influential advisor to uh, Vice President Biden. You have said publicly that uh, he needed to pick a woman. He did. You've you have not. You've said that uh, picking a an African American woman or a, a woman of color is not a must, but is a plus. And I, I wonder, for you personally, would it be a preference? I've said that. I'm the father of three African-American women. Nothing would make me more proud than to see an African-American woman on this ticket. Yes. So which is your candidate? Well, uh, the vice president will know if I ever decide to share it. <laughs> you haven't to date with him? No, I have not. Huh. I've said well, you can share it with us, and we'll relay that to him. <laughs> I knew you, know, you wouldn't tell a soul. <laughs> <laughs> I have not come down to one person yet. I've, okay. There are several women out there, all of whom are not African-American, uh, that I've talked about that I think would be great uh, running mates and would make great presidents. But I think we got to do the vetting, we got to do the polling, and be instructed by that. And then this president, this vice president, must let his heart and head take a look as well. He call it simpatico. I call it the head and the heart. Let me just ask you about one of them who's started to get a lot of buzz lately, and that is Susan Rice, the former national security advisor, who is simpatico with Vice President Biden, who has governing experience and clearly has national security experience, but she doesn't have any electoral experience. Do you think that's an issue at all? Well, I don't know if it, you know, people will raise that as an issue. I don't know if that's an issue that you would call disqualifying. Mm -hmm. uh, if I felt that, I never would have mentioned her name. I think if you go back, you will find the first time I ever expressed anything on the subject, uh, her name was included in the group of names that I offered. Hey, one last uh, political question for you. There's a Senate race in South Carolina uh, this year with Senator Lindsey Graham up for re-election, and some recent polling suggests that this is going to be a lot tighter than anybody expected. What's your sense right now of uh, whether the, your Democratic candidate has a chance of defeating Graham? Yes, he has a good chance. This is James Harrison, I believe. Jamie Harrison. Uh, yeah. Jamie Harrison, I've known since he was an 11th grader, he came into my life when he was an 11th grade high school student. Uh, he has uh, exactly what I think it takes to be a great United States senator. And I do believe that he's going to surprise a lot of people in this state and in this nation the morning of November 4th. Well, we will see uh, if your uh, prognostications uh, bear out, but we uh, always welcome you on Skullduggery, and we hope to keep talking as the uh, campaign continues. Thank you very much. It's good Real to be here with you. Real Thank pleasure you. to have you. Thank you, uh, Congressman. Absolutely. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. But we'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We now have with us Michael Maccabee and Judith Logue. Michael is one of the world's experts on narcissism and leadership. Um, he's the author of 15 books, including one called Narcissistic Leaders, Who Succeeds and Who Fails. And he does have the uh, distinction of he may be one of the only academics, if not the only academic, who's been approvingly cited by Donald Trump himself. Michael, welcome to Skullduggery. <laughs> Donald Trump cited me in the book, Think Like a Billionaire, saying I had accurately described him as a productive narcissist. <laughs> okay, well, we will discuss that in detail. We also have with us Dr. Judith Logue, a practicing psychotherapist for the past 50 years, and also a and I was struck by this, Judith, a um, captain and teacher in the Palm Beach County Civil Air Patrol, which makes me wonder if you have your own connection to Donald Trump. <laughs> no, I do not. Thank okay. you for asking. <laughs> All right. Michael is the editor, and Judith is a contributor to a new book, Psychoanalytic and Historical Perspectives on the Leadership of Donald Trump, Narcissism and Marketing in an Age of Anxiety and Distrust. So, Michael, let me start with you, because you've written and studied a lot narcissism among public leaders, world leaders. And in this book, you explore Donald Trump's narcissism. But I thought it was interesting that you conclude that he does not suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. Explain how and why you reached that conclusion. Yeah. Well, first of all, we need to make a distinction between diagnosing someone and understanding them. And many of the mental health professionals have been writing about Donald Trump as having a narcissistic personality disorder. But that would assume he's suffering, that he is out of reality. In fact, he's not suffering. We may be suffering more from him than he is. Not in unreality. He doesn't, he doesn't have the illusion he's president of the United States. Furthermore, what most people who... Uh, diagnose, miss, is looking at normal personality types. Now, a narcissistic personality is, can be a normal type, a kind of person who is, it has a very strong need to change things, who is, has very little conscience, a lot of energy, and some of these people can be productive. Jeff Bezos, or they can be Steve Jobs, or they can be uh, Elon Musk, kind of person that Trump compares himself to. But he's not at all like these people. He is really not essentially a narcissistic personality. He's essentially a marketing personality. This is the kind of person whose whole sense of identity depends on whether significant others affirm him as being important. He sees himself as a commodity. And he, he is in it's a horrible feeling if he's not affirmed, if he's not felt to be a winner. So he'll do everything possible to uh, create this kind of uh, role in the market. He treats everyone else like a commodity also. But people are judged on the basis of how successful they are or not. 
Now, his narcissism is, a, in a sense, a defense against this emptiness, this lack of, re of a real authentic identity. So he creates this grandiose identity, this kind of narcissistic identity, but he constantly needs others to affirm it. Jeff Bezos doesn't need other people to affirm the fact that he's successful. So to understand Trump in a way which has not been done, we have to understand his personality, also his particularly philosophy, which is one in which the only thing that counts in life is being a winner, otherwise you're, you're nothing. We have to understand him also in a context in which people, many people felt abandoned, they felt lost in terms of the ships and culture and the economy. We are seeing today a really a, a culture war between uh, the populists and the progressives and Trump has ability, his real, his positive elements is the ability to market, to understand how to use information technology and, and all this relational technology in such a way to appeal to this base, to give them what they want. Michael, I was going to say I was struck in your essay for this book, the excerpt from Trump's Think Like a Billionaire, the, a book he wrote, and I use air quotes when I say the word wrote, in 2004, where he cites you and he says, uh, Michael Maccabee, psychoanalyst and consultant, believes billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, and Ted Turner are successful in part because they are narcissists who devote their talent with unrelenting focus to achieve their dreams, even, it's, even if it's sometimes at the expense of those around them. And then he talks about your book and he says... A narcissist does not hear the naysayers. And that one sentence from Trump's own book, again in air quotes, really leapt out at me because not hearing the naysayers may be useful if you're trying to start a business, but if you're running a government and running foreign policy and trying to um, govern the country, it seems to me not hearing naysayers, not hearing people who raise questions about the policy you might be pursuing is a really bad thing. Yeah. Also, uh, many people don't know how much Trump was influenced by Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, who said really the same thing. You have to exaggerate your positives. Don't listen to the negatives. Turn everything into a positive. So really, in, a, in effect, Michael, what Trump did was say, in effect, you know, I have to make myself a narcissist to be a success. Michael and Judith, we're going to bring you in in just a second, but I, I just want to follow up. If Trump is not a kind of like clinically speaking, uh, a narcissist or, you know, in the sort of classic narcissist that we think of, what accounts, what do you think accounts for that seemingly pathological need for adulation and affirmation? And in terms of his life story, his relationship with his father, for example, who famously told his kids that uh, you're, you're either killers or losers. What in, in his... Well, uh, that uh, is yeah. a personality. Eric Fromm first described it's uh, the kind of person who has self-esteem is not based on any inner qualities. 
you know, most of us have our self-esteem based on our ability to love, to help others, to be effective and so on. But his self-esteem is totally based on what others rank him, where he is placed in the market of, uh, of importance. And that really, that makes somebody really desperate in a deep sense to constantly get affirmation. That's why he, he demands that he has to go out and give a talk to a, his followers, even though it's dangerous right now. He needs that reinforcement. And his policies are, to understand his policies, you have to understand that. You have to understand he really is focusing on this group, which gives him a sense of self-esteem. Judith, you've uh, written an essay for this book called Gaslighting and Beyond. Tell us what you mean by gaslighting. Gaslighting is the systematic manipulation of someone else's reality with the unconscious or unwitting cooperation of the victim so that the gaslighter insists on one version of reality that's true and the gaslight victim begins to believe it when in fact it isn't true. And it comes from the movie and the play. What's the movie? Tell us about it and why you chose that. As... Well, there are two movies. That, first of all, there's the play 1938 by Patrick Hamilton. Then there's the 1940 British movie. Then there's the Oscar-winning 1944 movie with Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, and Joseph Cotton. And that's the famous movie, 1944, where Charles Boyer is a psychopath and he makes Paula, his wife, believe she's going crazy by dimming the gaslight. And Joseph Cotton comes in as the detective and saves the day. And so uh, just picking up on the, the Joseph Cotton character, as I understand it, and I saw this wonderful movie, I saw it a long time ago, but I certainly didn't have the insight that you had into this phenomenon of gaslighting. But Joseph Cotton, the investigator, and he's investigating Charles Boyer char character, who's, I guess, murdered Ingrid Bergman, her character's aunt, and is also trying to cheat her out of her jewelry. He comes in and he validates Ingrid Bergman's view of reality. And I want to get to Trump here. I think you say in your essay that in some ways, in the Trump scenario, Trump would be Charles Boyer. And are the American people Ingrid Bergman? In other words, are we being are we being gaslighted by, and I think you may say that Joseph Cotton could be Bob Mueller, the person who stands up for facts. Yes, you're correct. I want to put out there, I'm a psychoanalyst, so I take a psychoanalytic perspective. So one of the things that's very relevant to me are the character traits and the character patterns and the early childhood where his mother was very sick when he was two years old and almost died. And so he really was on his own in many ways with an abusive, harsh father. He was mentored by Roy Cohen in later years, but in the early years, it's reported that he spent a lot of time with his father, with the mafia and with organized crime people. And when he was in Atlantic City, it was because I lived down there, it was known that he was involved with the mafia and organized crime. So he does have connections to organized crime, which would speak to his sociopathic traits. I'm not calling him a sociopathic 
personality disorder or a psychopathic. Now, Judith, I, I do have to break in here because I, I'm one of many reporters who's looked into this, and uh, there are certainly connections that um, Trump has had over the years with various figures who were close to the mafia. Um, there was one I wrote about who was actually a, uh, a deputy of John Gotti, who was a frequent companion of Trump, and Trump actually even once bought a uh, horse race from him. But we should say he has never been charged with any criminal wrongdoing Doing relating to any mafia figures. He's never been mentioned in any indictments of mafia figures. So we do have to be a little careful when we talk about exactly what those connections are. There were associations, but that does not necessarily make him a main, made man of the mob or anything close to it. Thank you for but, the correction. You're correct. But let's get back to this uh, concept of gaslighting and this idea that Donald Trump is gaslighting the American people. H how do you see that? He does it by saying reality isn't reality. And he operates at what I would call the borderline level of ego functioning. In other words, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So he puts something out there, then he changes his mind. So you can infer whatever you want. Whatever you want to infer, you infer. But is there a sense in which, because he does this with impunity, he says whatever he wants to say, whether it is true, true or not, which we are not accustomed to our presidents doing that quite as baldly and as often, that it kind of knocks our confidence in a way? It knocks us off our heels? Well, it knocks some people off their heels, but it appeals to people who want a strong man and what I believe what he's saying when it's positive where it offers hope. In other words, the coronavirus will be gone by Mother's Day or Easter. People mm -hmm. want to believe it or mm -hmm. that the coronavirus is a hoax. I know a number of people, especially in the state of Florida where I live, who have believed it's a hoax until they get it. So a question uh, for both of you, starting with Michael, uh, sort of hanging over a book like this is the specter of something known as the Goldwater Rule. And that dates back to the 1964 presidential campaign between Barry Goldwater and Lyndon Johnson, in which a magazine editor queried psychiatrists around the country whether Barry Goldwater was psychologically fit to be president of the United States and something like uh, 1,000. 1,189 uh, opined that he was not fit, and that caused an uproar, and the American Psychiatric Association then adopted a rule that said, you may not diagnose somebody you have not personally examined or treated. So, Michael, starting with you, is this book a violation of the Goldwater Rule? No, certainly not. First of all, we're not diagnosing. What are you doing then? The chap, the, what we're doing is understanding. And we're doing what a historian would do. Now I'm using understanding, psychological understanding of personality, which is very, very few psychiatrists are ever taught anything about it. They're taught to diagnose. They're looking for elements of illness. I'm looking for a total understanding of a personality within a culture. Because I think we can't understand the personality of a leader outside of the context and culture in which somebody can be a leader in one context 
but not in another. For example, Winston Churchill, he was the indispensable leader in World War II, rejected in before and after the war, before the war as a warmonger, after the war because pe people wanted a socialist government. But his traits were the same. You just can't understand a leader just by their traits. You have to understand this whole concept of, of the context of the interaction of the leader. So uh, I think, you know, we have a chapter in there by Otto Kernberg, one of the world's experts on, on uh, narcissistic disorder. And he, of course, he says, I'm not going to diagnose Donald Trump because I haven't seen him. But he really, he describes how Trump copies some of the behavior of Hitler, which is similar to, to gaslighting, of constantly repeating things over and over again that are untrue, that the Jews are responsible for this and that. This, Trump says the uh, demonstrators are all the Antifa. They're all these... Uh, anarchists and so on. But people begin to believe it. This is a, a kind of behavior that needs to be understood as Judy has understood it in terms of gaslighting. But this is not diagnostic. Judith, in your essay, you seem to struggle with the cold water rule. It sounds like, in reading it, it reads like you're tempted to want to diagnose Donald Trump, but aware of the cold water rule that puts some brakes on you. Am I correct? I really liked an interview and an article by Prudy Gorgeson, the past president of, of the American, where she got out the Army Manual for Leadership and Fitness for Leadership and compared Donald Trump in terms of all the qualities for leadership. And uh, I don't think he, he met any of them. So I think that's one way to get around it. But you're right. It's hard not to want to diagnose when you see all this stuff out there, but my training is I'm not supposed to diagnose unless I see somebody, so I don't. But you're right. It was difficult for you. <laughs> it's still difficult because I think if I mean, you've read the essay in October before Trump was elected, my African-American physician said, if Donald Trump is elected, I'm leaving the country. And I said, me too. Meanwhile, we're both still here. So, and he, he diagnosed him and he's not a a psychiatrist or a psychiatrist psychoanalyst. By the way, a lot of people seem to be wanting to diagnose uh, Donald Trump physically at the moment after watching the uh, West Point appearance where he seemed at one point to struggle to uh, drink a glass of water. He needed two hands and also to walk down the ramp from the West Point speech. I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, a number of physicians, not just neurologists, think there may be, you know, frontotemporal dementia or organic changes because of the changes in his vocabulary and syntax in the last 10, 20 years. This kind of uh, cognitive decline that people talk about, does it seem accelerated in him or is it the kind of thing that you, that you often see with people as they move into their 70s, for example, or is there something else potentially going on? Well, you do see it because I, I certainly see it all around me and my peers. I get impatient, but you see it. So it's common. He defies being put in a box. Yeah. Let, me, let me say something here. I don't see anything wrong with diagnosing someone if, if the traits are clearly diagnosable. The problem I see with so many 
people with Trump is there, it's a bad diagnosis. The personality disorder doesn't take in all the elements. It's like checking off a couple of traits, some of which you can find in many people who are just very egomaniacal, just full of themselves, et cetera, et cetera. What we're trying to say in this book is we have a better understanding of Trump. Back in the 1970s, when I was in psychoanalytic training, my training was different from my husband, who's a physician psychoanalyst. And I was trained not to use diagnosis. I was in a medical setting, so of course I learned how to do psychiatric diagnosis. But the analytic training was to understand the person and to not use psychiatric diagnosis because DSMs change every 10 years. Back in that day, it was DSM-2. Then I taught DSM-3, and then it was 4 and 5, and it's changed, and it's going to change again. So using psychiatric diagnosis, I think, does us in, in a way, because it, like Michael says, it misses a lot of important things in understanding the person. I've got one last question, which is how Trump compares to previous leaders that we've had in this country who may have exhibited some psychological issues. I think of Richard Nixon, who publicly you didn't see it very much. But when we then listened to the tapes, you know, that came out years later, you saw the brooding, the paranoia, you know, all sorts of things that Nixon was largely able to keep in check publicly. And so I wonder, does that say something different about Donald Trump, that he exposes himself in the way he does? Or is it about our culture that we just are, you know, with Twitter and social media, we're just out there more? What does that tell you? Richard Nixon was an authentic narcissist. He really fits the whole pattern that I have seen in narcissistic presidents of having a weak father he doesn't much identify with, and a very strong mother. You can see it in Ronald Reagan. You can see it in Bill Clinton. You can see it in a number of really authentic or absent fathers. You can see it in Obama. That's not the way. Trump is very different. And, and Nixon was the productive narcissist is a real visionary. Nixon was a visionary. Uh, he went to China. He had the whole idea of, of creating detente with the Russians and with the Chinese. And uh, he also, had, in many ways, was progressive in terms of health and safety and terms of the environment. He's so much better in terms of any kind of policy and any kind of thinking. The problem of his paranoia in his narcissism, he did himself in. He really shot himself. So I would not compare, if you, if you want somebody who's more like Trump, look at Boris Johnson in the UK. He's also a marketing personality. So it's not just the hair. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Michael and Judith, I want to thank you for your insights. The book is Psychoanalytic and Historical Perspectives on the Leadership of Donald Trump, Narcissism and Marketing in an Age of Anxiety and Distrust. Michael and Judith, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn and psychoanalysts Michael McAbee and Judith Logue for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.